Hello, and welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Dr. Eric Crampton, Chief Economist with the Initiative. And with me today, I have the great pleasure of introducing Chris Snowden. He is the Head of Lifestyle Economics over at the IEA in London. I've known Chris for some time. I think we'd first chatted, this over a decade ago. I was on faculty at the University of Canterbury. You'd done some neat stuff around uh, spirit level delusion, going through just the nonsense of some of the stats in the spirit level. If, if people remember, before there was donut economics and before we had... Um, MMT, well, the crazy version of economics at the time was the spirit level where folks were thinking that inequality was the root of all possible problems. And Chris very ably showed that that all was based on substantial cherry picking of the data, just picking the sets of country years to be able to pretend that there's a bad outcome out of inequality, showed that that was all nonsense. But then we continued a bit more when uh, I was doing a bit of work in alcohol policy, and that is... I'm really kind of jealous of Chris. His whole gig gets to be lifestyle economics, nanny state issues, and the ways that the state try to interfere in private consumption. So welcome, Chris. Great to be, Eric. Yes, yeah, I remember your work on the costs of alcohol very um, very well, extremely well done, and came in very useful for me. I've done loads of stuff since then about the, the various spurious cost estimates of all sorts of vices. Well, it's just depressing how those things get entrenched, right? So one of them gets created and they might do a minor bit of inflation updating on the thing, but the stat lives forever. No matter how many times it gets debunked, it's a number that journalists can find online and they just keep citing it no matter how many times you kill it. It's one of these zombies. Yeah, and people don't understand what it means. So I mean, it's deliberately confusing, I think, to call something a social cost or a societal cost. And then to imply that, that is a cost on the rest of society, you can see why people would would misunderstand that, right? But as you know, the vast majority of these cost estimates are um, yeah, internal costs, lost productivity mainly. Now, the main thing that I'm going to want to be talking with you, with you about uh, a little bit later on is the proposed New Zealand regulations around smoking. So there's a pile of regs that have been proposed as hit first reading now in New Zealand. So they're looking at capping the number of tobacco vendors, looking kind of at sinking lid policies on the number of outlets that could sell cigarettes, a creeping age limit uh, requiring that, well, you have to be at least 18 this year and then 19, then 20. So it, gradually everyone comes under prohibition. And at the same time, they'll be bringing in a mandate that all cigarettes have to have very low nicotine content, which is basically comparable to requiring that all beer be less than 0.5% alcohol. But we'll, yeah. we'll get into that in a little bit. First off, you've been doing a little bit of work more recently on what happened under the UK's lockdown with uh, alcohol use. So tell us a little bit about availability theory and what you were finding in the data. Um, well, there's really two theories I, I address in, in this particular paper. The paper just looks at how much alcohol was consumed in the first year of the pandemic and during lockdown in particular, because, and this may seem difficult for some of your listeners to believe, but this is you know, genuinely like a core belief in kind of public health these days, has been for years, that if, well, two parts of it. The first part of it is if you reduce the availability of alcohol, if you restrict licensing hours for example if you restrict the number of outlets which is something we're going to come on i think with tobacco in a bit then consumption is bound to fall if you reduce the amount of advertising of alcohol consumption is bound to fall and if consumption falls and this is the second part of it if consumption alcohol falls just per capita across the board then 
alcohol-related harm, alcohol-related mortality is also bound to fall and is bound to fall pretty much by exactly the same amount as consumption did. Now, what we saw under lockdown in Britain, but around most of the world, was a small decline in consumption, which seems to be mainly due to people who were going out and only drank when they were in a pub or in a bar, a club, a restaurant. And so those people obviously couldn't go to any of those places anymore. And so they cut down or stopped drinking. So you had a relatively small decline in consumption, about three or 4% in England, but you had an enormous rise of nearly 20% in the number of alcohol-related deaths. And yeah, it was really bad. Now, lockdown was a large part of that. I think the stress and the trauma and boredom of lockdown, but also there were aspects of the kind of the whole pandemic issue which is that people who were really needing to see people you know needing help about their drinking they couldn't get face-to-face appointments anymore anyway the point is that you did see a colossal reduction in alcohol advertising and a huge reduction in the general availability of alcohol obviously people could still get it but that's not what the theory says right the theory says if you just make it more inconvenient to get it or if you have fewer cues to to get it you, you know you don't you're not walking past the pub and thinking oh going for a drink all this should have led to a big reduction in consumption in actual fact there was a very small reduction in consumption probably didn't have much to do with things like advertising but the reduction in consumption wasn't accompanied with by a reduction in harm as measured by deaths, which is a pretty you know hard point of alcohol-related harm, and it should have done. And so it's just you know one of several natural experiments whereby these theories are tested and they just don't don't stack up. No, that's a neat finding. It's hard to find a clean nat- natural experiment. Of course, there's lots of things going on at the same time when COVID's hitting and with lockdowns hitting. It's not just going to be availability of alcohol, but certainly what you're finding is not consistent with standard availability theory. I remember here when we were going into our lockdowns, some of the anti-alcohol campaigners were arguing that we needed to have sharp prohibitions on mail order alcohol because they were terrified that people would just get so much booze by mail order and spend the whole time in lockdown really drunk and that harms would go through the roof. We didn't see an increase in alcohol consumption with lockdown, despite not cracking down on mail order. In fact, what it was one of the few things that you could actually get by mail order. There had be, New Zealand's restrictions were a lot tougher than the UK's. So during our level four lockdown, it was only real essentials that you were able to get delivered because a lot of workplaces just couldn't function. You had to stay home. Government recognized that beer beer and spirit delivery was actually an essential service. A lot of people really kind of depend on this, well, or really enjoy it, and they, they allowed it to continue. So even in circumstances where it's one of the, well, a lot of things you couldn't get by mail order, alcohol was one of the things you still could get, and we didn't see a big blowout in alcohol use. So again, contrary to the kinds of doomsday predictions that these guys like to give, so that's been great fun, but it's also um, a little bit illustrative of what can happen with changes in outlet density. So you'd mentioned availability theory. That seems to be underlying one of the planks of what's going to be coming through in New Zealand's tobacco reforms. So the proposed legislation will be capping the number of outlets, and we can talk a little bit about that in a minute. But just for a bit of context for you, for because well, you're UK-based, and well, actually, you, you guys have had some fairly similar policies to us in contrast to the United States and a few other places. So the UK, like New Zealand, has been fairly enlightened about uh, vaping. New Zealand kind of came to it accidentally. The UK came to it kind of deliberately. Maybe tell us a little bit about the experience in the UK with the shift to vaping and what's happened to smoking rates as consequence. 
We came to, I would say, fairly accidentally as well, actually. I mean, there was a big debate about vaping in kind of uh, 2011, 2012, 2013, uh, and the public health lobby didn't really know what to make of it, and they were inclined to basically ban it, you know, to regulate e-cigarettes as medicines, which effectively would mean no one could really get hold of them, as they're finding out in Australia. It was only really because we, it, vaping took off very early in England, and there was very quickly a lot of word of mouth around it. And it was quite a good independent vaping market, independent vaping scene. The tobacco industry had nothing to do with it whatsoever at that point. And it just kind of blossomed. And very quickly, everybody would know somebody who vapes and everybody would know somebody who'd given up smoking through vaping, including people in government. And so by the time the public health people had really noticed it, it had already taken on a bit of a life of its own. It was quite difficult to put the genie back in a bottle. So it was partially accidental it certainly wasn't with the blessing of the public health industry at the time but yeah we've seen in that period from about 2012 onwards we saw a really big and kind of unprecedented drop in smoking rates including youth smoking rates it's flattened out a little bit since then because there's so many scare stories now about vaping and you know i know people have gone back to smoking just because of the scare stories with kind of better the devil you know attitude so that's been an international problem that's been holding vaping back but generally speaking it's been a real success and the government has recognized it as such. We do have a new tobacco control plan coming out very soon. It is rumored to be fairly pro-vaping and reasonably liberal, but they, the government did commission an independent review from this guy who really knew nothing about the subject. And he just came up with an incredible wish list of weird things. Didn't include the reduced nicotine bit, actually. It does, it does include the um, outlet you know, reduction and it also includes things like painting cigarettes green or brown and putting individual health warnings on them and this kind of stuff all these ideas including the things that have been proposed in new zealand at the moment they've been around for ages you know i started researching smoking 15 years ago and the idea of putting individual health warnings on cigarettes was there then the idea of reducing nicotine to such a low level that they would supposedly be not addictive, has been around for decades. I mean, for decades. It's been around, I think, since the 60s. And it's never it's never been acted on because very quickly somebody says, well, this is a really dumb idea for various reasons. And so it's a shame to see New Zealand acting on it because we did think over here in Britain that, or I did at least, I was kind of relieved to see that you hadn't gone down the same path as Australia and really doubled down on this anti-vaping thing, which is so counterproductive and stupid. So I, th I thought you were taking a more enlightened approach, which you kind of are by, you know, being one of the very few countries to unban e-cigarettes. But it, unfortunately, and we may find ourselves in the same position in, in Britain very soon, I don't know, but unfortunately, it seems like the government has decided over there that, you know, okay, we've got the carrot and the carrot's kind of working. What we just need is a bit more stick as well, you know. And, and it will backfire because there is a reason why these policies have never been acted on before. Yeah. Our getting a decent vaping framework was also kind of accident, perhaps more accidental than, than your story, right? So here it was considered prohibited by the Ministry of Health because the, smoke, the original Smoke-Free Environments Act put in a prohibition on oral tobacco. Now, they were looking at chewing tobacco, but the Ministry of Health always considered this to be a very broad definition of oral use, right? So they put chewed tobacco, comma, or other oral use. And they said that this included then snus and it included vape, anything that went into the mouth. That was considered an oral <laughs> use and it was considered prohibited by the Ministry of Health. Now, 
a gray market. That meant that the that the tobacco companies who also had vape products just wouldn't touch the New Zealand market because they won't do anything that's that's anywhere near the line. So they were staying away from it. A small gray market started coming up where you could buy vape product under the counter, sort of from discrete retailers. A vaping community established itself. People started home brewing their own flavors, their own mixes. That all built up, and they all started helping each other to flip from smoking to vaping. So that got itself established. At the same time, Philip Morris had this heated tobacco product. They called them heats. Hmm, and yeah. yeah. Well, they wanted to start selling those in the New Zealand market, and they said, fine, we're going to actually just test the legislation because we don't think it actually applies to our heated tobacco sticks. We're just going to start selling them and let the Ministry of Health bring suit. The Ministry of Health brought suit, and the judge looked at the purposes of the Smoke-Free Environment Act, which were to reduce the harms of smoking, looked at the bit of legislation that banned it, saying, or other oral use, and said, well, in law, this has to be something that's similar to chewing, and there's nothing similar to chewing in an ICOS stick. So we're not gonna be we're not gonna ban these. So they were made I, it was I, I it, can't get my head around. What what was the justification for including smokeless tobacco in the smoke free indoor act in the first place? They just didn't they... They, they didn't like chewed tobacco. <laughs> it was nonsense. Murray Lawton, who's been a tobacco harm guy here for decades, has been advocating for snus since I arrived in the country. But that was captured under the Ministry of Health's interpretation of the act. So our vaping vaping here became legal by a judicial decision that it had never been illegal. So that meant that there was no framework around it. It was just yeah unbanned. So it is a beautiful thing, right? Uh, people started selling it because it had never been illegal by determination. The retailers decided amongst themselves, well, we're not going to sell this to anybody who's under 18. We're going to behave ourselves. And vaping picked up. The legislation that came through eventually and slowly was then constrained by that you had a pretty established user base who would scream yeah. if they did something terrible. Now, they did do a few terrible things. They, they set legislations that you could no longer sell flavored vape in dairies, so our corner convenience stores, which had been a reasonable outlet for these things. They said it had to be in a specialist shop. So now we've had a proliferation of specialist shops, including some dairies that have put a little internal divider wall, and they sell flavored vapes in there. And then people complain that there's a lot of these vape shops. Well, it's set by the legislation. You're not allowed to sell it anywhere else. It's a weird kind of complaint. But the new legislation is going to be doubling down on some of the problems in the current legislation. So the current legislation says you can't vape in places where you can't smoke. So they're worried about kind of normalization arguments, which have always seemed a bit nonsense to me. But I think they're especially harmful when you set a parity between actually harmful smoking and not harmful vaping. If you Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you're forcing the vapors to go and stand out in the rain with the smokers, well, smoking gets a little bit more attractive by comparison, right? A lot more attractive actually, yeah. Because when you smoke, a lot of people don't use nicotine, don't realize this, but when you smoke, you kind of don't really need another cigarette for an hour or so, you know. Um, depends on how heavy you smoke, but you know, you don't get much of a craving for quite a while. Whereas you'll notice with vapors that they tend to graze more on the on the e-cigarette. They have a few puffs on a regular basis. And you can't really kind of stock up. I certainly in my experience, you can't kind of stock up the nicotine in your body through vaping. <laughs> Very quickly you want to have a bit more. So you won't tend to chug on a vape for five minutes solid like you would do a, a cigarette. My point being that if you are forced to go outside, then 
you might you you're actually better off from that point of view smoking because then you're not going to have to go outside again for a longer period of time. Yeah. So the current regulations that are coming in now, or at least that are proposed, and hopefully Parliament fixes some of these, but Labour has a majority, so I'm not terribly optimistic. They're trying to crack down more on the smoking side of things. So vaping has been well established. Their hope is that by cracking down further on smoking, people will shift over to vaping. So the first thing that is going to be coming in is a restriction on the number of outlets that can sell tobacco. They will be under licensing regimes that require community consultation, one wonders then what happens to established dairy owners and what might be extracted from them by those who are able to exercise a veto on this. So there'll be these complicated processes for getting a license. Then the, presumably they're going to be having a stinking lid on this. So the numbers will be coming down over time. Yeah, I'm worried that at least in the first instance, if you're restricting the number of outlets that can supply, you're going to be creating almost monopoly rents for those who are yeah. still able to sell th- sell this. Have, have yeah. you have any 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 views on this? Yeah, I mean, I think it has been tried in some little bits of America, and surprisingly, you know, <laughs> it hasn't worked. Yes, I mean, it, this should be very popular with the retailers, right? If they can, if they keep their license, they're, they're getting rid of some of their competition, and more people are going to flock to their shop. I mean, it's not going to work. I mean, to go back to this COVID lockdown alcohol thing for a moment, you know, it seems fairly obvious to normal people that even though two thirds of the places you could buy alcohol during the the British lockdown were closed for months, you know, it seems to most people would say, yeah, but you can still go to these shops and get it and you can still get it online. And if you want to get hold of alcohol, you'll get hold of alcohol, right? And it's exactly the same with, with this. It's like, well, if you're a smoker, you're going to carry on. And yeah, it's a bit more inconvenient, but you're still going to do it. You're still going to get hold of the, the, the cigarette. So all it creates is a whole load of transaction problems, really, and you know, just creates friction in the, in the system. And it gives this kind of sort of monopoly power to the... Um, the dairy owners, I guess, whoever it is, who, who, who still got the licenses to sell cigarettes. So it's just another of these, yeah, you know, all these things that, you know, that you've mentioned, they're all basically ways of trying to bring about prohibition without actually calling it prohibition. Because prohibition, thank God, still is a dirty word. There may well come a time when prohibition has been rehabilitated and people are taught that actually it was a great success. But for the time being, at least, even prohibitionists don't like calling themselves prohibitionists and don't like calling what they're doing prohibition they use the favored term is end game and people in tobacco control have been talking about the end game for quite some years now and hoping that this euphemism will not you know startle anybody but i mean if we can move on to these other two issues as well because the principle really is 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 very much the same yeah you can (laughs) you can reduce the number of places that sell tobacco until there's none left and hope that people haven't noticed that what you're doing is prohibition you can increase the age at which people can buy cigarettes until nobody can buy cigarettes and and hope that no one notices and calls it prohibition or you can take all the nicotine out of cigarettes or nearly all the nicotine out and hope people don't see it's prohibition of course it's prohibition you could buy alcohol in the 1920s in america you could buy beer up to 0.5 percent came as a big shock by the way when when the law turned out to be like that because a lot of people thought beer per se and wine actually were still going to be legal this was just like an anti-saloon thing an anti-liquor thing it wasn't but you could still buy what they called near beer i mean it wasn't even near beer really you know 0.5 percent it's you know, kind of shandy levels of alcohol. <laughs> but 
nobody, even from the anti-saloon league, would claim that that meant there wasn't prohibition. Right? They explicitly called it prohibition, but you could have a tiny amount of alcohol in a beer. Similarly, if you can have a tiny amount of nicotine in a cigarette, it's still prohibition. And of course, the, the crucial similarity between the two is that nobody wanted to drink beer at 0.5%. Even people who really missed beer didn't drink that. And nobody's going to want to smoke cigarettes with 0.5 you know, milligrams or whatever of 0.1. I can't remember what the ratios are these days, but yeah, a, a, a token amount of nicotine, which is what's been proposed in America. Of course, the FDA have been thinking about this on and off for a, a very long time. It's kind of the opposite of, of the um, harm reduction approach. It's essentially a harm maximization approach. What you're doing is you're keeping all the all the stuff that kills people. You're removing the thing that doesn't kill people, but which people actually quite enjoy, <laughs> and calling it a public health measure. And one of these one of these brands, the only brand I think probably in the world which has so little nicotine, has been launched as of last year in America with the FDA's approval as a modified risk product, whatever they call it. And of course, no one's buying it. Of course, no one's buying it. The question is, would anyone buy it if there were no proper cigarettes in the market? The answer, I think, is, is no. Insofar as anyone did buy it, they would be probably smoking far more cigarettes than they do at the moment. And that would obviously not be not be good for them. Uh, or they might chug a vape as well as smoking, possibly, or get a nicotine patch as well as smoking if they really like the, the whole hand to mouth you know, stuff. But I think the in practice, what would happen would be if you just had open prohibition, people would have to buy on the black market and people will go on the black market. Yeah, the argument in New Zealand has usually been that because we're a small island in the middle of nowhere, we're just not going to get smuggling. There have been growing yeah. problems with smuggling here, though. So over the past, I've noticed uh, that. Yeah, yeah, over the past decade, uh, we've had substantial increases in tobacco excise. So now you're looking at something like thirty dollars a pack for like a basic uh, pack of smokes, right? So that means there's an awful lot of profit in every kilo of loose tobacco you might smuggle in. Excise is over $1,000 a kilo. So you fill a container ship, you've got a lot of money there. And I mean, New Zealand is not an obvious market, right, for for Chinese tobacco smugglers or whatever. You know, it is, it is with the greatest respect, in the middle of nowhere. It's about as far as you can get from anywhere. And there's only 5 million people there, right? At the very least, you'll stop off in Australia, rather than go all the way to, to New Zealand. And Australia in the last 10 years has had an incredible problem with, with smuggled tobacco and people growing it and the chop-chop and all this kind of stuff. And New Zealand doesn't really have the climate for chop-chop. It hasn't got enough people really to make it worthwhile as a major place to, to smuggle tobacco to. But I've noticed recently, because I try and keep my eye on these things, you have had quite some pretty significant seizure, seizures, not quite Australian levels yet, but pretty significant seizures. And prior to that, you had all these dairy... Uh, robberies and ram raiding and stuff like that, which as bad as things are in, in the UK for illicit tobacco, we've never really had that. People kind of smashing into shops and, and taking off with them thousands of dollars of, of cigarettes. But, you know, people find a way, don't they? You know, if you if you put your foot on someone's throat to the extent that governments have done in New Zealand, Australia and Britain in terms of tobacco duty, you are dealing at the end of the day with an addictive substance apart from anything else. People are going to find a way of getting a hold of it for a reasonable price. And so I'm afraid New Zealand is going to see a lot more of this because, as you say, you know, the, the higher 
yeah, the, the wider the difference between the illicit price and the, the legal price, the greater incentive there is to smuggle and the greater incentive there is to buy smuggled yep. tobacco. This is really basic stuff. Well, at least one advantage we have over the UK is that some of our health advocates are a little better informed than yours. So I've been pretty impressed with Action on Smoking and Health in New Zealand. So Professor Emeritus Rob Beaglehole has been advocating in favour of vape for rather some time. He's become a lot more sceptical of these punitive approaches to smokers, and he has labeled the very low nicotine content cigarettes as effectively being prohibition that, well... Well, that's good, because yeah. most of these guys don't don't acknowledge that. Yeah, so that's, that's all been encouraging. On the downside, the legislative framework that's coming through will be encouraging smuggling. They've recognized this. The regulatory impact analysis warned about it. Customs has warned about it. Budget 2022 has allocated more money to the Customs Service to try and crack down on smuggling. But if you're looking at something like $2.5 million a year as an interdiction bu- budget increase for Customs, and if you're getting seizures that are hitting well in excess of that for in the value of a single seizure it's going to be tough for that it's fingers and dikes kind of stuff it's not going to solve the problem i wouldn't have thought so yeah quite honestly look if i was if i was trying to experiment with tobacco prohibition i would probably start with somewhere like new zealand you know (laughs) because it's the kind of place where if it's going to work anyway you'd think it would work in in new zealand it's got quite a low smoking rate already it's an island of five million people and you know a long way really from from anywhere but it's still i just i I still don't think it will work and i hope we don't have to find out well it's interesting to use the word experiment is there anywhere that's actually tried very low nicotine cigarette mandates i understand that there i thought that there was a very low nicotine cigarette that had been tried to be marketed in spain a few years ago and nobody liked it but i've not heard of anybody mandating this yet no no as far as i know i'm pretty sure i'm right about this no no one's ever tried that before you have had you know like herbal cigarettes and stuff launched and of course nobody smokes them because obviously people smoke for the the nicotine you know it's just completely the wrong way around what you want to do is get rid of the stuff that harms you and keep the nicotine it's really you know a lunatic idea to 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 try it any other way unless you think people are stupid enough to, to to believe that this isn't just prohibition yeah, I expect that they're hoping that now that vape is reasonably well established, a creeping prohibitionist approach to tobacco will force everyone to shift into vape. I'm a little pessimistic on yeah, that. Yeah, sure, that's the idea. I, I get, I get that, and I'm, I dare say it will work to some extent, right? But I think what you need is a lot more carrot and a lot less stick. I think the the issues. The, the reason that you still got lots of smokers who have never even tried vaping in Britain. Now we're a really pro vaping country by, by international standards. And yet something like 30% of smokers have never even tried an e-cigarette, mostly older smokers. I find that kind of amazing because you think, you know, they're so similar in some ways. You think at least people will give them a go given they're so much cheaper and obviously so much less harmful, but people haven't. And a huge number of people who have tried them have only tried them once or twice and they go back to smoking. Now, you know, if you don't like vaping and you prefer smoking, I'm a libertarian. That's, that's fine. That's what, you know, you should yep. do that. And th- that's what the government's approach should be. But probably there are things that could be done in terms of maybe the technology to make them a bit more straightforward for people in terms of maybe the flavors, get people trying different flavors until you find something you like. But also in terms of just the, the general messaging, you know, we, we are all around the world now, you know, there's so many reports, so much junk science being produced, scaring people off e-cigarettes the whole Ivali epidemic in america in 2019 when this 
you know, the whole issue around people becoming seriously ill because they were vaping THC, which had been adulterated. And then the anti-vaping people just basically lied and misrepresented this and said this was an e-cigarette issue. And suddenly, for some reason, in one country, in certain areas of the country, vaping is just like killing people um, with acute lung, lung injury. And it's never happened anywhere else. It's never happened, happened since. But this is like nicotine vaping. Yeah, you know. So that, that's all that scare, scare stuff. You've got Mike Bloomberg putting in $160 million dollars uh, into front groups around the world's campaign for a ban on e-cigarette flavors, which he sees as kind of the, the low-hanging fruit here in terms of using regulation to uh, bring about a form of prohibition. There, you know, we're up against some very powerful forces, you know, and there, you know, I, I, you can understand why people who see the headlines about popcorn lung and what have you think, well, yeah, genuinely do think better the devil you know. You know, I know yeah. the risks of smoking. Maybe I'll give up one day, but I don't want to get into this vaping thing because it, it seems like it's just as bad. And if you look at opinion surveys, especially in America, yeah, there are way more people who think that e-cigarettes are worse than smoking than think that e-cigarettes are much safer than smoking, which is a criminal um, you know, indictment of, of the public health lobby, which has paid a lot of money to supposedly educate people. Again, they'll all point to... No. There are some of the crazy parts of the public health lobby here, uh, like the Asthma Foundation has been particularly egregious, but action on smoking and health here sounds an awful lot like you. Their recommendations are similar to yours. The last bulletin they'd put out, they'd suggested better messaging around switching to vape, more support for switching, community-led initiatives around switching, and they wanted more emphasis on tracking trends in this. Uh, The community-led initiatives one is a bit of fun because when the legislation came in around vaping, they made illegal a lot of the folks who had been doing community outreach because they made it a licensed uh, profession that you had to have a degree certificate in those sorts of things to be allowed to do it. So that was kind of nonsense. I mean, one thing they should really push for, and this is a pretty important thing, it goes back to this indoor use ban, right? In Britain, there are no restrictions legally at all on vaping indoors. Plenty of bars and restaurants say you can't do it, but it's not the law. And it's a really big deal for the reasons I explained before. You know, if you can't vape indoors or you can't vape anywhere where you can't smoke, for a lot of people, they're just going to think I might as well smoke. Uh, and it also sends out this negative messaging, signaling that these things are basically just as bad as each other. And governments can do a lot about that to try and give people the message throughout, you know, yep. without, you know, not, not just putting out TV ads, but actually showing people that these things are different by regulating them in very different ways. No, agree. So my approach on harm reduction would be similar to Rob Beagle Holes and Ashes. I'd add legalized snus. It's been fairly successful, especially in among Scandinavian males in reducing smoke rates. A lot of people incredibly have, successful. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people who found vaping to be unattractive have found snus to be fairly attractive. It's just a little pouch of cured tobacco that gets put between the lip and the gum. Um, and completely agree on distinguishing between where va- vaping and um, smoking is allowed. All right, so hopefully okay, hopefully we get some modifications to the legislation that make things a little bit more sensible. If we don't do that, I hope at least for your sake that New Zealand gathers the data on the consequences of what we do yeah. so that we're a cautionary tale to others so we, we can... If it blows up in the ways that I'm expecting it to blow up, we would at least be able to demonstrate to the rest of the world, don't do this. This is what's happened in New Zealand. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it all works swimmingly and other people would want to take it up, but I'm not an optimist. Any parting thoughts? 
Um, just that with this thing of raising the um, raising the age every year, uh, which again is an idea that's been around for so long, particularly a few years ago when it was like, well, we'll everybody who's born after the after the year two thousand won't be up for smoke. That course, that ship has now sailed already. <clears throat> but what will happen with this? And I think definitely, if New Zealand doesn't try this policy, I'm sure some someone will. What's going to happen in practice is they'll get to the point where I don't know, like twenty five year olds can't smoke but 26 year olds can and everyone's going to be saying well this is just crazy really and the anti-smoking people will say you know what you're right it is crazy why why are we allowing 26 year olds to smoke we'll just stop everybody smoking and we're going to do it in one year's time everyone's going to have plenty of notice we're going to dish out vapes and encourage people to switch to all these other things but this is what's going to happen from january the first such and such a year it's that's it game over and i think that obviously that will still be disastrous and you'll have all the effects of prohibition, but I think that's how they're going to do it. This is not something where they're going to wait until people are 90, you know, before yeah. they, before they bring the, the shutters down. It's something that will go on for a few years. There'll be a big debate about it, about whether, you know, are these people adults or not, but the aunties will win. Well, if we've got uh, very low nicotine cigarettes by that point, there might not be much left to prohibit because who's going to be well, wanting to use those things? <laughs> Chris, it's been wonderful. Thanks so much. It's been great chatting again. We'll have to do this maybe in a couple of years' time after we've got some handle on what has happened with the change in legislation here. Thank Anytime. you so much, Chris. Anytime. It's been great. Great speaking to you. Cheers. Cheers.